Well, hello, everybody, and welcome back to this week's episode of The Bible Breakdown. I do want to tell you about a fun interaction I had with uh, Anchor today. So uh, I was when I was coming to record this week's episode, uh, I looked and well, I didn't look. I, it was just on the dashboard. And allegedly, last week's episode of the Bible breakdown of the Bible breakdown got uh, four thousand five hundred listeners, which I am very confident is just an error. Um, so I I messaged them because it kind of makes all my analytics look a little crazy. So they were like, "Well, you better talk to Spotify and Apple." I figured that'd just be a whole lot of time to affirm that there was some sort of error. So for now, last week's episode is about a hundred times more popular than any other episode of the Bible breakdown. Uh, if for some reason we do have 4,400 new listeners, hi, glad to have you back to reality. So we are going to be back in second Chronicles 24 today, not back in, this is the first time we've been in second Chronicles, but back in the period of the divided kingdom talking about some kings and what they're up to in 2 Chronicles 24 today. This time we're going to be talking about a boy king named Joash. He is one of a couple of kings who became king very young. In fact, no, I already that's a note later. I'll wait, I'll wait. But we are going to see, and this is what I'll tell you now and not wait till later, Joash's life a bit of a roller coaster. We're going to see what we can learn from him today. And this is also in the Gospel Project, uh, Lifeway's uh, material that we use for our kids' ministry. Uh, this is the start of a new unit. Uh, this one is going to be focused on repentance. So we'll talk a little bit about that. And let's jump right in, shall we? So back in second, no, not back, Blake, just in. We're just in Second Chronicles. We haven't been here before. In Second Chronicles 24, starting with verses 1 through 3. Joash was seven years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Zebiah of Beersheba, and Joash did what was right in the eyes of the Lord all the days of Jehoiada the priest. Jehoiada got for him two wives, and he had sons and daughters. Okay, so Joash was seven years old when he became king. He beats out a later king named Josiah, very close in name, they're just kind of it's almost like an anagram of each other's names. He was aged eight, so the youngest in the history of the southern kingdom uh, to be king. So that's fun to look at for Joash, and it looks like from the jump, he's got this guy Jehoiada, uh, a priest who is uh, seems like kind of helping him along in his quest to be a good king while also only seven years old. A uh, couple of other interesting things. It says he did what was right all the days of Jehoiada the priest. Which is pretty good, but hold on to that. Also, Jehoiada got him two wives, and I have to think that that probably happened later in his life and not at age seven, most likely. Also, you may be wondering, it unfortunately was quite common at this time for the kings to have multiple wives. The fact that he only has two is actually pretty good in comparison to a lot of them. Uh, it was not God's design, but it often did happen without specific rebukes from God. Doesn't mean it was good or what God wanted, but unfortunately, these kings had some bigger fish to fry, I guess, but uh, sin-wise is what I mean by that, uh, that maybe this wasn't uh, just absolute top issue for like the prophets and such. But again, just because we don't see a specific kind of rebuke here doesn't mean that it's something that God wanted or that is his design. Because what we see from the very beginning is 
uh, one man, one woman. And that is what happens in the garden. And that it's not meant to be a relationship with multiple people. And any of us who are, are married, I think, recognize that it can be really hard to love one person really well. Imagine splitting that between more people. I think it would get pretty challenging. But anyways, it did happen. And I hope, again, hopefully after he was seven years old, because that's no age for marriage. Moving on to verse four, says this. After this, Joash decided to restore the house of the Lord. And he gathered the priests and the Levites and said to them, Go out to the cities of Judah and gather from all Israel money to repair the house of your God from year to year and see that you act quickly. But the Levites did not act quickly. So the king summoned Jehoiada, the chief, and said to him, Why have you not required the Levites to bring in from Judah and Jerusalem the tax levied by Moses, the servant of the Lord, and the congregation of Israel for the tent of testimony? For the sons of Athaliah, that wicked woman, had broken into the house of God and had also used all the dedicated things of the house of the Lord for the Baals. Okay, so Joash had something on his heart. And what was on his heart was he wanted to repair the house of the Lord, the temple. He wanted to repair it. We see at least some context for this uh, in verse 7. that, uh, And this is re- referring to a, a foreign uh, adversary that had come into the city and had kind of stolen things from the, uh, from the temple. You have to also think that's just normal wear and tear of the temple after hundreds of years. They probably needed a little TLC. And uh, it may it was probably neglected. So he tells the uh, Levites, hey, start gathering some money from the people. But they were not really getting on it. They were doing it too slowly. They did not act quickly is what it says. So Joe Ash gets his mentor, the guy who's been helping him out, I assume this whole time, who was there from the beginning. He gets Jehoiada to get them going. He says, hey, we need to put the we need to put this at the top of the to-do list. We need to get this going. And this tax that he is referring to was a, a, a census tax that was prescribed in Exodus 30. It was for the purpose of maintaining the place of worship and was also part of their atonement sacrifice. So it was kind of part of their, uh, their rhythms of uh, sacrifice and things like that was also giving. And it was half a shekel of uh, silver, whether, and it was not a, uh, it was just for everybody. It didn't matter how much money you had. That was the that was the tax. Was half a shekel for this. So uh, apparently they neglected that. Who knows for how long? Um, you think about times in the nation's history when they had uh, lots of wealth, like under Solomon. Maybe it died out during that time because they didn't need it. Whatever the reason, apparently it had gone uncollected. That's what it seems like. So Jehoiada gets the giving party started. Verse 8, so the king commanded and they made a chest and set it outside the gate of the house of the Lord. And proclamation was made throughout Judah and Jerusalem to bring in for the Lord the tax that Moses, the servant of God, laid on Israel in the wilderness. And all the princes and all the people rejoiced and brought their tax and dropped it in the chest until they had finished. And whenever the chest was brought to the king's officers by the Levites, when they saw that there was much money in it, the king's secretary and the officer of the chief priest would come and empty the chest and take it and return it to its place. Thus they did day after day and collected money in abundance. So they send out this command. They set up a chest outside the temple and people are coming to give and they are ecstatic. They're having a great time. How many times is like some sort of uh, mandatory giving or mandatory tax set in place and people are like, yay, we're so glad about this. Pretty much never, right? But it says the 
the all the princes so like you think about like the leaders of the nation kind of maybe like a noble kind of part of society so to speak and all the people rejoiced i kind of take that even maybe to be like from the top to the bottom of society they all rejoiced that this was something that they were going to do uh again by knowing exactly what it was going to go toward so they people gave so much they had to keep emptying it and then setting it back up and day after day, it says it was getting full, and they'd have to empty it and set it back out. What a great problem to have. And here's how they were using it. Verse 12. And the king and Jehoiada gave it to those who had charge of the work of the house of the Lord. And they hired masons and carpenters to restore the house of the Lord, and also workers in iron and bronze to repair the house of the Lord. So those who were engaged in the work labored, and the repairing went forward in their hands. And they restored the house of God to its proper condition and strengthened it. And when they had finished, they brought the rest of the money before the king and Jehoiada. And with it were made utensils for the house of the Lord, both for the service and for the burnt offerings and dishes for incense and vessels of gold and silver. And they offered burnt offerings in the house of the Lord regularly all the days of Jehoiada. Okay, so they used the money to pay the laborers. And then what's left over? They used to replace the the vessels and the things and the utensils that went in the temple that were part of the worship. Sacrifices were happening regularly. Joash was leading the people to repentance. Like I mentioned at the top, this is kind of what this section's about. And Joash, with, of course, great help from that priest Jehoiada, led the people into repentance. Okay, so as we talk about repentance and what it is. This is basically what I want you to know about repentance. Basically, it's turning away from something bad and towards something good, or having a change of heart on something from something bad to something good. Okay, so we repent from something, we repent to something. We don't, it's not as much like, a, oh, I stopped doing something, or I'm at a place of being stationary, and then I start doing something. It's kind of this both and, that there's a Stopping and a starting kind of that is implicit in this term. So the repentance that Joash led them to was a change of heart toward really it's not even just the giving, it's but even with the the sacrifices and everything, really to the law as a whole, and especially the giving and the making sacrifices in this instance. And they turned away from idol worship, turned toward loving, following, obeying God through the law and through what he had prescribed through Moses. So we see that Joash, even though he started as a very young king, not terribly experienced, he's got A, obviously the Lord is with him. B, he's got some good counsel with him. Jehoiada is helping him a lot in this instance, it appears. And he is leading the people into repentance. Unfortunately, this is not going to be the same choice that Joash continues to make. Let's look down at verse 15 here in 2 Chronicles 24. But Jehoiada grew old and full of days and died. He was 130 years old at his death. And they buried him in the city of David among the kings because he had done good in Israel and toward God and his house. Now after the death of Jehoiada, the princes of Judah came and paid homage to the king. And the king listened to them. And they abandoned the house of the Lord, the God of their fathers, and served the Asherim and the idols. 
and wrath came upon Judah and Jerusalem for this guilt of theirs. Yet he sent prophets among them to bring them back to the Lord. They testified against them, but they would not pay attention. After Jehoiada died, a highly honored priest among the people who did so many good things in the nation, they bury him with, again, high honor to be buried among uh, in the city of David among the kings. And we get the reasoning why, because he'd done good in Israel. He'd done good toward God in the temple. But after he passes away, some leaders in Judah, some princes, that's how I take that to be leaders in the kind of like maybe a noble class, a higher class. They come to the king, they pay homage, and they end up back worshiping idols. No, they worked so hard. They did so good. They repaired the temple. They were offering the burnt offerings. They were giving of of the money they were supposed to. But without the counsel of Jehoiada, it seems Joash has taken the next counselors he can get, and they are not so great. They abandon the temple that they had just rebuilt, and God's wrath was upon them. Even so, even in their rebellion, even in God's wrath, he is so patient. God is so patient, and he sends prophets to guide them back on the right course. But it says they would not pay attention. They would not listen. And unfortunately, it only gets worse. Verse 20. Then the Spirit of God clothed Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, the priest. And he stood above the people and said to them, Thus says God, why do you break the commandments of the Lord so that you cannot prosper? Because you have forsaken the Lord, he has forsaken you. But they conspired against him, and by command of the king, they stoned him with stones in the court of the house of the Lord. Thus, Joash, the king, did not remember the kindness that Jehoiada, Zechariah's father, had shown him, but killed his son. And when he was dying, he said, may the Lord see and avenge. Okay, first off, if you listened last week, I brought up Zechariah also. I don't believe this is the same Zechariah at all. And also, I brought up Zechariah under false pretenses last week. If you didn't listen to the very, very end, I was meaning a prophecy in Joel that I mistakenly uh, attributed to Zechariah. But it's just funny that we're talking about Zechariah two weeks in a row. What are the odds? There's a lot of biblical names. Anyways, Zechariah, this Zechariah, is Jehoiada's son. Remember, Jehoiada, it seems like, was a major figure in Joash's life from the time he was young. Zechariah said he was clothed in the Spirit of God. He tells the people he about their rebellion against God, and he tells them it's going to have consequences. And at Joash's command, they kill Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada. It's pretty dark, right? Pretty brutal. That Joash would forget, and that's what it says. He did not remember the kindness that Jehoiada had shown him. And instead, he commands the people to stone Jehoiada's son in the court of the temple. Oh, man, it hurts. Uh, to me, it's such a such a betrayal. It's like a soap opera or something that you would see, not something that would actually happen. That's such a oh, such a I don't I would even call this not just rebellion against God, but also a, a rebellion against Jehoiada and his family and how and the kindness that they showed Joash. And this is an opportunity for repentance that unfortunately goes unrealized and in fact goes becomes worse, right? 
it's a time when he when Joe Ash is confronted with what he'd done wrong and instead turned maybe even to do more evil. So the opportunity to turn away from the idols again and turn toward the worship of the true God was there, but this time Joash doesn't lead the people that direction. So often in our lives, the catalyst of repentance is guilt, right? Guilt doesn't always lead to confession and repentance, though it should. Sometimes guilt leads us to pride and self-righteousness. Other times it leads us to shame and self-loathing, right? Sometimes it's a shame and a, a, a low opinion of ourselves, the other direction that it leads us to. And neither of these is whether the pride part or the shame part is what sh- it should lead us to. It should be leading us to confession and repentance. But guilt has an important place in our lives. Guilt is a an emotion. It may be my least favorite thing to feel. Guilt. I would probably rather feel sad or angry or afraid or lonely. I might feel like to feel a lot of those things before I would like to feel guilt. Do not, I do not enjoy the feeling of guilt. And so oftentimes what that leads me to is a, oh, let me ignore this. Let me not confess this or let me rationalize this so I don't have to feel that guilt, which kind of is that pride self-righteousness piece, right? It should be leading me when I feel that to an examination of, is there something I need to confess and repent of here? But But I'm like, that sounds hard. I'd have to admit I was wrong. I don't like doing that. Okay, so for me, it's more, that's kind of what I, I do whenever I experience guilt is, I think, really my least favorite thing to feel. But guilt does have an important place in our lives. Guilt should tell me that I've done wrong and I need to act in response to that, not with rationalizing or ignoring, but instead with maybe confession. Sometimes I need to apologize. I need to grow or I need to repent. Sometimes all of the three of those previous ones are just a, a part of our repentance, right? Guilt has an important place in our lives. Guilt signals something in us, a guilt that is actually related to something we've done that is wrong, right? Sometimes we feel guilty about something that's not wrong. That's more kind of tending toward that shameful part, right? That shame that we can feel. But guilt that is related to something we've done wrong is an important thing in our lives. But again, it can also lead to an unhealthy view of ourselves turning into that shame. Not that I've done wrong, but because I did this, I am wrong. There's something wrong with me leading to unhealthy feelings, unbiblical feelings about ourselves. Because when we are experiencing a shame that says, I am wrong, there's something wrong with me, I'm not good enough, I have no value, we are also in a place where just as much as we would be with pride that we are not holding a biblical worldview of ourselves. Because a biblical worldview of myself puts myself in the right place, right? Not too big, not too small. I am not above reproach, but I'm also worth something because God says I am. So guilt can lead us to one of those two things. Both of those are not biblical views of ourself. A biblical view says, I am valued, I am created in the image of God, I am loved by God, and I also recognize that I have sin in my life and that I am not perfect and I am in need of growth and I'm in need of forgiveness. I'm in need of grace. So 
in this story, we see, unfortunately, Joash kind of takes the pride route. He says, oh, you're going to prophesy against me. You're going to say that I'm being disobedient to the Lord. Well, then I'm just going to have you stoned in the temple courtyard, which is a pretty high level of pride to get there where you think that is the the route you should take, right? But eventually, Joash does experience what Zechariah prophesied, the judgment. We see even as he's dying, he says, may the Lord see and avenge. Eventually, Joash is killed by foreign invaders, and that's how his story ends. Told you it was a roller coaster. We had some high highs and, man, some low lows. I do just want to make this comment, too, that uh, Zachariah's response when he is dying, may the Lord see and avenge, perfectly, perfectly reasonable thing to say, not wrong at all. He's putting this in the Lord's hands, but it does, for me, remind me of how when Jesus was being treated similarly, he said, forgive them for they know not what they do. And this is a moment for us to realize, yeah, what Zechariah did was actually fine. He's putting it in the Lord's hand for vengeance. To take that a step further like Jesus did, to put it in the Lord's hands and say, please forgive them. Pretty spectacular. Pretty awesome. So as we do some application on this lesson, I've got a few things that I think just stuck out to me. Uh, one that uh, Joash experienced in his life, our company matters. Like the company we keep, the counsel we take matters. When he was surrounded by good company, when he was following the counsel of Jehoiada, someone who was zealous for the Lord, he did a lot of good things. But then when that counsel was gone, he found new company that was not so good, that did not have a zeal for the Lord He took poor counsel. It led to poor decisions and kind of spiraled into this horrible place at the end of his life where he is in total rebellion against the Lord and his prophets. So our company matters. The people we listen to matters. The people that we allow to have a say in what we think we should do, it matters. We need to be wise in how we choose our counselors. Second thing, we will be guilty. And we are called to repent. We are not called to experience that guilt and rationalize it or ignore it like I do. Blake, talking to you here. We will be guilty. We're not called to be prideful about it and pretend it doesn't happen to rationalize. But we're also not called to beat ourselves up and to treat ourselves as the dust of the earth. We're called to recognize I have done wrong. I may need to confess to the Lord, to others. I may need to apologize to others. I may need to seek reconciliation with others. I may need to do all of these things. I obviously have some areas where I need to grow. I need to repent. I need to turn away from the thing that led to this healthy guilt, if that's what it is, and move toward what God's calling me to do. So we will all be guilty. We will all do something wrong. And therefore, we will experience guilt. And we're called to repent in the middle of that not choose the pride way or the shame way, but instead choose the right-sized view of ourselves way, as we often say around here at Solid Rock. Third, our sin has consequences. Now, this is kind of just toward the end, and please hear this. I do not think that you are going to get uh, killed by an army of Syrians if you sin. Please do not hear that. That is what happened to Joash, but that's 
unlikely to happen to you. Our sin does have consequences, though. And I think we've talked about this before on the Bible Breakdown. It is a dangerous game to try to say, oh, this punishment must be a direct discipline from the Lord. This bad thing that is happening to me, I've obviously done something wrong. I'm not sure what it is, but I've obviously done something wrong. God is punishing me until I figure it out. That can also be a very dangerous way to view consequences, right? Because the scripture has promised us that in this world, we will have trouble. That is a promise. Anyone who seeks to live a righteous life will endure suffering. That is a guarantee. And it doesn't mean you've done anything wrong. But we do know that God has created the world and us and everything around us with certain designs. And when we exit that design, there are consequences that we will experience. We will experience consequences because there is sin in the world. There is sin in us. So sin does has, have consequences. And it's something that we need to be aware of. Again, it's not like we should think that if we have sinned, that we're going to get attacked by an army of Syrians. But at the same time, we need to recognize that sin is uh, not a an arbitrary like line that God has drawn for us. And he just doesn't like to see us have any fun. And so he draws these lines and calls certain things sinful. But instead, he's created us a certain way for certain things. And he knows what is good for us. So the boundaries that he's set for us are not like a tether to keep us from going and doing something fun. But rather, they are a, uh, they're a railing against a, a steep drop. Um, they are a, a fence uh, in a backyard so that a kid doesn't wander off property. It's a good thing. It's for our protection. It's for our good, even if times we feel like it's an unnecessary barrier. It's a time for us to examine and say, who's really in charge here? Am I in charge or do I trust that God has created me? He knows what's best for me. Even when these boundaries seem difficult, am I able to look at those boundaries and trust who God is in the midst of that? But even though our sin has consequences, even though we will experience guilt, We also have to remember, ultimately, Jesus' work on the cross gives us freedom. And it gives us freedom to admit our guilt. I don't have to rationalize my sin as if doing something wrong was out of the question before, and I'm trying to keep a perfect record or something, right? Jesus' work on the cross gives us the freedom to admit our faults because he died on the cross not with the expectation that we were going to be perfect, but with the expectation that we would sin and that we would be in need of forgiveness. So Jesus' work on the cross, even when we experience that guilt, gives us the freedom to confess that and to receive his grace in the middle of that. And knowing that our sin, which causes that guilt, has consequences, we can ultimately rest in the fact that he has paid the final consequence for sin. Because the scripture tells us the wages of sin is death. He paid for that on the cross. He took the punishment we deserve, even though he had done nothing wrong. And when we have faith in Jesus, we are forgiven. We do not have to be concerned that we will take the ultimate consequence of sin, which is death. Yes, we will die in this life, but we will get to live again with him forever and eternity. So as we encounter our own sin and our guilt in life, those are the things that we have to turn to. We have the fact to turn out that this is not outside of God's expectation. In fact, it's firmly planted in his expectations of what our lives would be like. And he chose that we were worth it anyway. 
He showed us that love. Anyway, even knowing we wouldn't be perfect. So we have the opportunity to see our sin, repent from it, and turn toward the God who has showed us and continues to show us an everlasting grace and love. Thank you.